Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Many of the attributes of God are infinite attributes. So if you ask a question like, how much does God know? He knows everything, all things actual and possible. That is an infinite knowledge. How much power does God have? All power. Hence, we call him the Almighty. Or again, in what location is God to be found? In all locations. He's everywhere, in all places. So many of God's attributes are infinite. We actually, in theology, call these the omni-attributes. Omni is a Latin prefix, if I can say that, that simply means all. So God knows all things. We say he is omniscient, omniscient. He knows all things, or he has all power. He's omnipotent, all power. Or he's in all places, he's omnipresent. So many of God's attributes are omni-attributes. They are infinite in degree. But not all of God's attributes are infinite. God is not all-patient. There's no word in theology, the omnipatience of God, because that's not true. God is not patient to an infinite degree. It's the universal testimony of the Old Testament prophet and the New Testament apostle that God's patience, although it is massive and beyond anything that we could really measure, it is not unlimited. It has an end to it. The apostle Peter in the New Testament, he writes to those who doubt that God will ever really judge sin because look, Everything's going on just like it always has. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus' first coming, and where is he? To bring justice. And to them, the apostle Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there's God's patience. Peter adds, the day of the Lord will come. Emphasis on the will. It will come. Patient, patient. Why has it been 2,000 years of celebrating Christmases and Christ has not returned to bring justice on earth? Because God is patient, He is patient, He is patient. The mockers mock, He'll never come. And Peter says, He will come. There is an end to God's patience. The Old Testament prophet Joel agrees. He says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Peter agreed with Joel because he quoted that very line at Pentecost. God is patient, and then the great day of the Lord, foretold by all the prophets, or most of them, that great day of the Lord, that is the day after all of these days of patience, when there's no more patience for those who have not repented. 
That is when the gate closes in the words of Jesus' parable. The bridegroom has come. The gate has been closed. And the foolish virgins who come knocking after that point, that gate will not open. There's no sense that it will just open it and let you in after. When the day of the Lord comes, the gates close. And if you have not reconciled with God through faith in Christ alone before the gates close, the gates will never open for you. Not in a thousand, thousand ages. Because God is immensely patient, hence here we are, all alive, right here. There is mercy, the gates are open. But when they close, when the patience ends, because it's not an infinite attribute, when the patience ends, there is justice. There is wrath, unlimited wrath, but not unlimited patience. For those of us who do not live to see the day of Christ's return, there's a sense in which death itself is a kind of day of the Lord. Like Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for men to die once and after that comes judgment. So even if we're not living when the day of the Lord comes, when Christ comes, when we die, that is a kind of closing of the gate. There's no opportunity for repentance after you have died. It must take place before. If you don't know Christ, then God really has been patiently waiting, waiting in your life. No bolt of lightning from the sky, Waiting, waiting. It's the patience of God that's waiting. It's been waiting for years, your whole life, waiting, giving you opportunity to repent. Here you are in the presence of the gospel. You're hearing it. You have the opportunity to turn from sin to Christ and to enter through the gate into paradise forever. And if you make the choice not to enter in now, at some point known only to the Father, not to me and not to you, God's patience will run out. And then there will only be judgment. Now that is something I mentioned because it's directly in our passage today. If you were here last week, you know that in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we saw a man of God that is a prophet. He came to Eli, who is the priest in Shiloh, along with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. But they are bad priests. So God sends this man of God to foretell judgment on Eli's house. God had waited a long time to bring this judgment. Eli served as a judge in Israel for 40 years. He didn't die until he was 98 years old. That is a lot of God's patience. But as we see in the last half of the prophet's message today, God's patience is just about to run out. Let's see this, 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength, it's Eli, and the strength of your father's house, the house of Ithamar, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. 
Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. If you remember the beginning of this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 2, when we had Hannah's holy prayer, from that prayer you can learn the basic blueprint for the entire book of 1 Samuel. This is a book of reversals. That was her whole prayer, is reversals. For example, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. See the reversal? That's the entire book of 1 Samuel. We saw that in Penina. She was the cruel wife who mistreated Hannah while she herself prospered with many children. And then what took place? A great reversal. Now Hannah is exalted with a large family and Penina disappears in the background. We are going to see that most clearly with Saul, the first king of Israel. He will disobey the Lord and go paranoid and God will remove him, a wicked king, and replace him with a lowly shepherd named David. See the reversal. Replaced. Reversed. After David has run away and hidden in caves for so many years. That is a great reversal. And in our text today, we are seeing a reversal. It's not the biggest reversal here in 1 Samuel, but it's a significant one. It is a reversal of the priesthood. Where Eli and his sons, the house of Eli, they are the most prominent priests in all Israel. They are at the top of the chain, the top of the pyramid, and they are going to be removed in a great judgment of God and replaced by a faithful priest in his house, namely Zadok, as we'll see, will be the replacement. God is patient, but he is not omnipatient. That's the lesson of our text today, and it is our desire to learn every lesson of the Scriptures, those that maybe we are naturally drawn to, the happier lessons, but also the more serious lessons. And so as students in the house of God, we come before this text to learn about our God, something very serious about Him, which is that He will not be taken lightly, and He will bring judgment. His patience is not forever. It comes to an end. We're going to see that in this text under two headings, the first will be most prominent and take up most of our time. And we can call it out with the old as this prophet is declaring, God is declaring through the prophet that his patience is coming to an end for the house of Eli. And the old will be removed. But we also see in verse 35, in with the new. And we will close with that thought as there will be a faithful priest, Zadok, who will replace Eli and his house. So let's begin with out with the old. The end, so to speak, of God's patience with the house of Eli. Look at this again, the description of it, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. 
Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Many prophecies of the Old Testament begin with this very phrase. Behold, the days are coming. That phrase occurs right in the middle of this man of God's testimony, not at the beginning, but it's a way to grab you and wake you up. And that's what it means to do to Eli, to grab him, to make sure he understands. But of course, this text inspired by the Spirit of God also grabs us and speaks to us. Behold is not technically necessary in what follows, but it's a way of saying, look at what is about to be said. Look. If you've fallen asleep halfway through his message, now reorient yourself and the days are coming, meaning this surely will happen. Right now there are one kind of days for Eli's household. They're days of prosperity. They're days of fattening himself upon the best of God's sacrifices. But God is saying through the prophet, look Eli, enough is enough. The days are certainly coming soon where there will be a change. There will be a reversal. It's like what those in 2 Peter 3 feel. These words could be for them. Because Jesus has tarried so long in coming, they say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Same, same, same. And to them, and if you've thought that yourself, 2023, it's been a lot of years since this began. Behold, listen, the days are coming. There will be a change. Our life as we know it will not always be as we know it. It cannot, it will not continue indefinitely this way. God's justice, God's judgment in this world, it does move in most cases slowly as we count slowness. It's not really slow from God's perspective. A day is like a thousand years. So it's been two days. And so it's not been a long time from his perspective, but from ours. But it's a bit like the rotation of the earth. It happens so slowly that from our perspective, if you didn't know it from school, you wouldn't even know it was happening. It doesn't seem like we're spinning. But if you took every national force in this world together collectively and tried to stop the earth from spinning, you can't do it. It is absolute, it is certain, it is too strong, it is too powerful, it is a slow rotation, but it is inevitable. There is no way for us to stop the rotation, and that is very much like God's judgment. It happens so slowly that today, days are like the days of Noah, Scripture says, where people are eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and your neighbors, or even in your own life, you just feel like you're living your life. You can forget about God. Because there's no immediate judgment in your life. You might be prospering and your heart bulges from fatness, as Asaph said of the wicked. 
and it just seems like you're getting away with everything. Oh, but the world does rotate, and there is no way to stop it. And behold, the days absolutely are coming. And today, they're closer than they were yesterday, and tomorrow they will be closer than they were today. There is a certainty of God's judgment. Behold, the days are coming. Now, the judgment that was about to fall on Eli's house, again, this was a slow judgment. He had judged for 40 years, died at the age of 98. This was a slow judgment, but it was a certain judgment. And really, it has two parts in our text. The first is that most members of Eli's house, his relatives, most of them will certainly die. It's the most immediate meaning here of, quote, I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. Literally, the text says, I will cut off your arm. So your arm is your strength. This is like what we're going to see in just a couple of chapters when the Philistines steal God's ark and bring it into the house of their idol, Dagon. And you will see how Dagon falls upon his face before the ark and his hands are chopped off by God which shows Dagon's not powerful. He has no hands. He has no head either. No hands, no head. He's not powerful. That's what God is saying of Eli's house. I'm going to cut your arm off. You will have no power. And the reason Eli's house will have no power is here they are in Israel. They have a lot of power. They can send their servant with a trident and take meat by force, and there's nothing you can do. But when most of the members of Eli's house are dead, they will have no power. That's the point of God cutting off their power. This threat is repeated twice. That means the same thing. So that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in the next verse, he says it again. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Why would there not be old men, which by the way was kind of the highest position of honor at that day where villages were ruled by elders who were old men. But why would there not be old men in the house of Eli? Because they will all die as young men. It's the end of verse 33. All the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Now this brings us back to what we discussed last week. That Aaron, the very first priest who lived in the days of Moses... Aaron had four sons, Nadab and Abihu, the first two died for their irreverence. But that left two sons who formed the two major houses of the priests in Israel. The first son was named Eleazar. The second was named Ithamar. So the descendants of Eleazar and Ithamar, that made up all of the priests in Israel. Those two. Ithamar's house at this point in Israel's history, where we find ourselves, is the most prominent. And the reason is because, best we can tell, Eli is descended from Ithamar's house. So when the text speaks of your father's house, it could be talking about Eli's immediate father and thus relatives here, but it may be pointing back all the way to Ithamar, son of Aaron. So Ithamar's house, those are the descendants. They have preeminence at this point. They're on the top. Eleazar's descendants are probably around serving as priests, but they're not at the top. At the very top, it's Eli, then it's his sons, and they are the line of Ithamar. They are preeminent. But what this prophecy says is Eli's house and also Ithamar's line is about to lose preeminence because of Eli and his son's sins. 
Eli and his sons, they themselves are at the top of the chain. They're going to die. You see that verse 34? And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. We are going to witness their death in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. They will die in battle with the Philistines. And yes, both of them on the same day. When the news is brought back to Eli, Eli will fall over, having fattened himself on the sacrifices of the people and being heavy. He will fall onto his neck and break it, and he will die at the news. So it's important that there be this sign for Eli, because he's not going to witness the fulfillment of the rest of these judgments, because he himself will be dead. But he will see the sign that confirms that these judgments will surely happen. He will hear that both his sons die on the same day. That will be, in a sense, the first major blow against the house of Ithamar. It will be the death of Eli and his sons. But that will not be the end, only for Eli. The next great blow in fulfillment of this prophecy against the house of Ithamar is going to happen in 1 Samuel chapter 22. At that time, we find there are 70 priests with Ahimelech at the head of them at a place called Nob. David by then is running away from a crazy, maddened, paranoid Saul. David finds some help from these priests at Nob and then continues running away. And when Saul discovers that they helped David, Saul comes and tells Doeg the Edomite, you'll meet him later, bad guy, but he tells Doeg, kill all the priests at Nob. And Doeg slaughters 70 priests. That's significant because we know that Ahimelech and the priests there related to him, they were relatives of Eli. They were part of Eli's house, and they were of the line of Ithamar. To kill all 70 of them is a massive blow, second blow, against the house of Ithamar. And it's in fulfillment of this text right here. Only one of the priests there at Nob survives, Abiathar, who we'll see here afterward. Now, by the time that David becomes king, Saul finally dies at the end of 1 Samuel. Beginning of 2 Samuel, David becomes king. When David becomes king, you might think, well, who were the priests under David? Abiathar, that one lone survivor from Nob. He's the son of Ahimelech. He survives, and because of his great loyalty to David, he was with him for so long, he becomes a head priest. But there's a change. You say, oh, Ithamar's still in charge. No, we find that David has a co-head priesthood. There are two chief priests, so to speak, in David's day, Abiathar of the house of Ithamar, of Eli's house. But now he's joined, all of a sudden, out of the blue, by a man named Zadok. And Zadok is of the house of of Eleazar. So now the preeminence of Ithamar's house and Eli and his sons is lowering, lowering. There is a slaughter that takes place. The fulfillment of this passage where Abiathar who survives is surviving to weep out his eyes. He lost his entire family to grieve his heart because of the slaughter. But he is alive and Ithamar's house is descending and Eleazar's house is increasing to replace. And now they're equal in the reign of David. Interestingly, 1 Chronicles 24 actually tells us that in David's reign, when he had these two chief priests, one from the house of Ithamar, one Eleazar, that there were many more, twice as many priests from the house of Eleazar than from Ithamar. Already a decline in numbers was happening because of the slaughters taking place probably. 
First Chronicles 24 says, Since more chief men were found among the sons of Eleazar than among the sons of Ithamar, they organized them under 16 heads of fathers' houses of the sons of Eleazar and eight of the sons of Ithamar. That's the point of this prophecy. All the sons of your descendants shall die by the sword of men. That happens first by the Philistine sword against Eli's sons. That happens second by Doeg's sword against the 70 relatives of Eli who dwelt at Nob. So the great judgment is first of all that most members of Eli's household, his relatives, will die. But there's actually a second part to this judgment in our text, and it's that not all of them will. There will be a small number of survivors. Notice this in verse 32. Then in distress, you, but the you here is not Eli, because by the point this is fulfilled, Eli will be dead. He's talking about Eli's descendants who survive. Then in distress, you, your descendant, will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. There will be a small number of survivors to Ithamar's line. God's judgment here is not a shotgun judgment against Israel. Actually, God is going to bless Israel. He says the Lord will, do, will bring prosperity. He'll bestow it upon Israel. It is a rifle judgment that is focused upon Eli's house for his sin. The you here, like I said, is not Eli. He will be dead when this is fulfilled. It will be his remaining descendants who will, quote, in distress, look with envious eye on all the prosperity that God will give to the nation under Zadok and the other priests. Verse 33 also talks about the survivors of Eli's house. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. That is most immediately fulfilled in Abiathar, who literally is the only one at Nob who is not slaughtered. And he is caused great grief because his family is slaughtered. But this actually isn't just referring to one person, but a small number of people. You can see that in verse 36. He talks about, quote, everyone who is left in your house, meaning most everyone in Eli's house will die in judgment, and there will be a few, a small number, who will be spared, but they will be greatly impoverished, diminished, grieved. They will not flourish. That's the point. The survivors will not flourish. That's a judgment even upon those who survive. Verse 36 again, and everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore him, that's Zadok and his new priesthood, for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please, Put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. What a reversal. Because Eli and his sons were eating rich, fatty meat all their lives. The best of the best. They were stealing from the people as they brought the sacrifices to God and were fattening themselves. And God says, now there will be a just reversal where your descendants will not fatten themselves on my sacrifices. They will be begging for a single morsel of bread. That really is the fulfillment of what Hannah said. Those who were full, that's Eli and his sons, their descendants now have hired themselves out for bread. This is a lot like what James, Jesus' half-brother, warned people about even today as we await judgment. He said, 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You don't want to be the fattest pig when the butcher comes. But that's what Eli and his sons had done. And so there will be judgment, greater judgment for them because of it. Now, it's right that the prophet here should mention survivors of Eli's house because, like I said, not all of Ithamar's descendants were wiped out. There were really survivors, but all of Ithamar's descendants after the time of Eli and his house were never again at the top of the chain. They were never again the most important priests in Israel. Like we said, Abiathar is the first survivor. He is the only one not cut off. When Doeg makes his slaughter there at Nob, there's Abiathar, but he weeps out his eyes for his whole family, including his father who'd been slaughtered. And he runs to David when David's on the run there in the cave of Adullam and hides with him. Like I said, afterward, David does bring Abiathar on in this kind of dual priesthood next to Zadok. And like we said last week, when Abiathar is part of a coup, attempting to steal the throne from David and give it to his son Adonijah, once that is put down, Solomon, David's son, doesn't kill Abiathar, which he could have for treason, because Abiathar had been with David in David's hardest days. But we do read this from Solomon. Like I said last week, 1 Kings 2.27, Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. When Abiathar was expelled by Solomon, never again would Ithamar's line be the most important priests in Israel. It would always be Eleazar's line from there on out, always. Especially, specifically through Zadok, Eleazar's descendant. Now, so you know, the last blow, in a sense, the ultimate, not ultimate, near ultimate fulfillment of the word spoken by this prophet take place hundreds of years later after all of these events. After Israel has been taken into Babylon in captivity and brought back, the prophet Ezekiel, who is prophesying so many hundreds of years later, he prophesies as Israel, the Judah, the southern tribe, is coming back from exile. Ezekiel prophesies there'll be a restoration of the temple which was destroyed and of the priesthood. But interestingly, listen what Ezekiel says will take place after the exile in the future to the priesthood. He starts by speaking of, quote, the house of Zadok. Descendants of Zadok. He says, the sons of Zadok who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, when all of Israel, including priests of the house of Ithamar, started turning to idols, it were the priests under the house of Zadok who stayed faithful. So he says, the sons of Zadok shall come near to me to minister to me. And then in contrast, this is what he says of all the rest of the priests, which would be the house of Ithamar here. But the Levites, the priests here, who went far from me, going astray from me after their idols when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment. They, 
those of Ithamar, shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before the people to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, and they shall bear their punishment. They shall not, they shall not, Come near to me to serve as priest, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and the abominations that they've committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple, to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. What is going on here? The sons of Zadok are established after the exile as the only faithful priests to serve as priests before the Lord. And at this point in Ezekiel, we are told that the sons of Ithamar, Ithamar's house, the rest of the priests, because they went after idols, they will never serve as priests again. Instead, they will serve the priests as they serve as priests. The house of Ithamar will serve the house of Eleazar. You know, what's interesting is that's exactly what was foretold here in verse 36. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him. Everyone in the house of Ithamar shall come to the house of Eleazar the Zedekites to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. That's what happened. Amazingly, that's exactly what happened. The Ithamar house, decline, 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 removed from the priesthood there, serving in the temple still for a morsel of bread, for a bit of silver to survive. See how different than Eli and his sons, rich and fat at the top of the pyramid. By Jesus' day, by the way, if you know the Sadducees, one of Jesus' enemies, by the way, but the Sadducees in Jesus' day, or major movement of people, the name Sadducee very likely is a derivative of Zadok, the Zadokites, those who were faithful during the exile. It seems that's where the group known as the Sadducees came from. And you'll remember in Jesus' day, they had charge of the temple because it was given to the descendants of Zadok. God's Justice is so relentless. It is like the spinning of the earth. Whether it happens soon or after hundreds and hundreds of years, it happens. It can't not happen. God's patience does run out. For so long, the house of Ithamar, Eli and his household could do wickedly. But the earth was turning. God's judgment was coming. Like Johnny Cash put it, you can run for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. God is not patient forever. There's no force on earth that can stop God's judgment from falling. When the gates are closed, they are closed. Judgment will take place. And when it was time for judgment to take place with Eli's household, God said, okay, it has been long enough, out with the old. And that's what happened. Now, as we draw near a close, 
There is, as I said, one verse in this text, more of a positive nature. And we're turning now to that verse because when God judges, there are two sides to his judgment. It cuts both ways, to remove the proud, but also to exalt the lowly, as Hannah said. So let's look now at in with the new. Verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. That priest is Zadok of the house of Eleazar, who appears at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Unlike Eli, Zadok will be a faithful priest. Interestingly, in this text, the word for faithful, he'll be a faithful priest who does everything in my heart, and the word for a sure house are exactly the same word. Actually, Justin in the Sunday school talked about the Hebrew amen. When we say amen, they both come from that same word, a faithful priest, a sure house. In other words, because Zadok will be solid, God will make his house solid. And that is exactly what happens. You know how long Zadok's house remained in the place of preeminence as the most important priests in Israel? All the way from David's reign until the second century BC, when they were removed for political reasons. That is almost 1,000 years. It is hard to get a more certain, established, and solid house than that. That's three times the length of the existence of our country. (laughs) That's how long Zadok's house were the most preeminent of the priests, and that is what God had promised would happen. But I do want to note in closing here that the forever that's mentioned in verse 35, he'll establish his house forever, it's a way of speaking. It's not an absolute forever because Zadok died. And Zadok's descendants, they died. As great a judgment as it was to remove Ithamar's descendants and replace them with a faithful priest and a faithful house, the Zadokites, the house of Eleazar, as great as that was, it was still not good enough, especially not good enough for us. It was not good enough to be a permanent arrangement. They get rid of Ithamar, raise up Eleazar's house, but Eleazar's house was still made of priests who were weak. They failed. They died. As faithful as they were, they also died. The former priests, the author of Hebrews tells us, including the house of Eleazar, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Eleazar's house, the Zedekah priesthood, it's a more sure house, but it is not sure enough. It too reaches its limit. It too is full of priests who die and have to be replaced by more priests. It was an imperfect priesthood. And so what we read in Hebrews is that Jesus, the son of David, the great high priest, is the ultimate fulfillment, even of verse 35. He is the most faithful priest. Hebrews says Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, forever. That's ultimately. Zadok, you and your sons, forever, but it's a limited forever. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently in the most literal sense because he continues forever. Jesus, who is of the priesthood of Melchizedek, don't have time to get into that. If you've read Hebrews, you know it. In a sense, Melchizedek's house 
is the ultimate fulfillment. It's in Jesus, the priesthood. Jesus cannot age out of the priesthood like Eli and lose his eyesight, become useless as a priest. No. Jesus doesn't die and have to be replaced by other priests. No. Jesus will not have his priesthood stripped away from him like Eli and his sons by judgment. No, never. He has a priesthood forever. He is really the ultimate fulfillment of verse 35. And I will raise up for myself, says God, a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall not only go in and out before my anointed forever, he'll be my anointed forever. The son of David, faithful David who does what is in God's heart, the son of the Zadokites, faithful priest, in a sense, who does what is in God's heart. And those will be brought together in Jesus. He's the only one who can atone for our sins. And when you hear a message like today and a text like today about God's certain, absolute judgment that is coming upon this world, that behold, the days are coming where there will be a change, that should cause a degree of fear. But it's only a fear... That is meant to propel us toward Christ who is so faithful and good a priest that if you appeal to him in faith immediately by the sacrifice of himself, all of your sin is atoned for. It's only his prayers, not even the prayers of the house of Eleazar as good as those were, but it's the prayers of Jesus that interceding can turn away all of God's wrath. It is that certain judgment falling down and crashing like a whole world upon Christ on Calvary. Him taking that and pleading in his high priestly prayer that he might receive the penalty for your sins. So it is true that God's patience, it's not infinite and the doors are closing already. The time has grown short I don't know when Jesus' return is, and I don't know when your death is, but all of us must stand before the throne of Christ and give an account of the deeds we've done in the body, whether good or evil, and I assure you, when that day comes, you want to be sure that Christ, as a high priest, is the one standing in your corner, pleading for you on the merits of his own blood. And if that's true, when you hear the clinking of the gates, which you will hear, it will happen, you will find yourself on the inside in paradise forever.